Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. This week we got to talk with Britton Watkins, a professional conlanger working with the Star Citizen teams on languages for their alien species. We talked about what goes into making a language and some of his work on Star Citizen's races Xi'an and Banu. This was a really interesting interview. I wish we had a little bit more time to pick his brain a little bit more because it's such a fascinating concept of creating languages for different alien races. No, it was a lot of fun. He really knows his stuff. But before we let you get into that, I believe we have a bit of news. Elden Ring has gone gold. Estimates take about a, about 30 hours to complete. Whether that's on foot or horseback, we are not sure yet. But they also said there are dozens of hours of side content. So I think you'll be plenty satisfied once you play. But don't take my word for it. Just wait till it comes out and make a judge for yourself. It's scheduled to release February 25th now. Yes, delayed one month, but that's not the end of the world. One month is not a year. So I think we're going to be okay with hopes for that in the future. So I can take the day off work. Mm-hmm. So clear day. your calendars. Yeah. Not be disappointed. Get ready now. <laughs> yes, get ready. Spend a day with it. In other news, multiple Star Wars games have been announced. Uh, we already knew that Jedi Fallen Order was getting a sequel. Uh, no surprises there but also being overseen by Respawn Entertainment is a FPS headed by Peter Hirschman. Mm -hmm. And a strategy game has been announced that's being developed by Bitreactor. Bitreactor is made from former Firaxis devs, so we can expect something a bit like XCOM. Honestly, I feel like that would be... That's going to be a really interesting Star Wars title that'll bring a lot more people into it. The level that they can go into kind of world creation and everything else is really, really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. I was hoping for a new uh, Empire at War because, who boy, that game was great. I was also hoping for a Knights of the Old Republic remaster, but we'll see. <laughs> oh, that would be good too. I mean, we're getting the KOTOR <laughs> remakes, right? Yeah, I think I think we are, but, you know, it's... When is the issue with those at this point? But well, it'll be fine. they've been announced, so we yes. just have to hold our breath. And then we also have Final Fantasy XIV back on sale now is the time to hop in, everybody. Uh, get it once again. It is uh, ripe for the uh, introduction time. Uh, allow you to get fully immersed into this burgeoning fantasy world that is the final fantasy. I think that's about all the time we have for news. So we're going to throw it over to our interview with Mr. Britton Watkins. We are here today with Britton Watkins who is a professional conlanger and currently working with Star Citizen on various languages for that game. Britton, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a bit about what you do. What is it to be a conlanger? Well, to be a conlanger is maybe a little bit different than being a professional conlanger, but it basically means to invent languages from scratch, you know, to work in language as an art medium And some people do that for their own personal diversion and entertainment. Other people do it to highlight or augment some other form of entertainment, like 
a film could be constructed language included in a novel. In my case, it's for Star Citizen, the game. Mm -hmm. So how did you get started doing it? I became interested in constructed languages as an offshoot of being interested in natural languages. So I speak Spanish. I spent many years living and working in Japan and speak Japanese. And the fact that the constructed languages, when they're fully fleshed out or grammatical and work like natural languages do, was my segue into it, I guess. There have been a lot of people doing this for a very long time. And I even made a documentary about it called Conlanging the Art of Crafting Tongues, where people can go learn more about the, the real deep history of the phenomenon of humans inventing languages. But I just, you know, ended up working through some connections on Star Trek Into Darkness, teaching the actors how to say their Klingon lines, and that led to more interest. And here we are today, about 10 years later from that first experience with the Star Trek franchise. That's really interesting that it was kind of like Klingon that you started out with. It's kind of like the initial, as far as like a lot of people are aware, it's like the first created language that they're, that people like kind of in this sphere are semi-familiar with because it's been so popularized. Yeah. Well, it's, it, of the, of the, the most modern science fiction entertainment franchises, it's probably the biggest, most recent grandfather language, you know, of course, beyond that, you go back, you get Tolkien and all the middle earth stuff, and mm -hmm. you can go all the way back to, you know, Europe in the 1100s and there's documentation of people doing it. But <clears throat> yes, Klingon is definitely the one that most of us know from those, those first few Star Trek movies after the original mm -hmm. TV franchise. So it is certainly a, a big one. And a big influence on me also is then the not be language of Avatar, you know, from roughly mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Both of those had some some influence on what I'm doing today for, for Star Citizen. Mm -hmm. Speaking of influences, how do you start? How do you build a language? Where do you decide that this is like the seed? Do you just pick a language and start experimenting with it? Or do you build the script? Or do you start making up words? Well, that's a great question. I mean, a really, really good question. And <clears throat> I would say it depends on what you're doing it for. So in my case, I'll talk about doing it for a game. Um, it would be similar in film or similar for a novel. But if you're starting with, um, we have some aliens and we need them to seem and sound alien, but yet somehow be approachable from a linguistic point of view, you learn all you can about them, about the aliens first. So if they have uh, a vocal tract, you know, if they can make all the same sounds more or less that a human can make, then that can be a part of where you start with the way the language sounds. Um, sometimes in a science fiction production, uh, they want the aliens to sound really, really weird and in a way that human beings could not possibly pronounce it with our mouth parts. Um, but then they want a writing system that maybe somehow or other humans could learn to to read or at least recognize visually. So it kind of you start with what the need of the production is. You know, if sometimes they just want to have alien writing all over stuff, um, but for some reason they want it to actually be 
grammatical, you know, that is uh, an actual fully formed uh, language that's reproducible. So I typically start um, with the way a language sounds based on what I know about the, the aliens I'm working on. And I would say the second highest priority in the case of Star Citizen is what does their writing look like? Because so far, all the all the cultures I've worked on, they're all advanced space-faring civilizations. So they all have writing. You know, they have writing, they have mathematics, they have all the same things that, that we do um, in human culture. So for me, start with the way it sounds, then with um, maybe the writing just because that's what the the folks that I interact with the most, my clients at Star Citizen, those are the two primary things that, that they're concerned with. And then grammatically, we figure things out based on, uh, you know, sometimes it's random. It's like, well, these aliens, the grammar for these works this way. So just to keep it interesting, let's, you know, have the word order be very different in this other language. It can be quite arbitrary why you make the grammatical choices that you do. Um, if you have a certain type of culture that is extremely hierarchical and there's a lot of you know obedience from the bottom to the top or something like that, you might have a similar thing that we have in human languages, which is a very complex set of pronouns. So you might end up having a pronoun for somebody who's way up here in the hierarchy be very different than somebody who's way down low in the hierarchy. And again, a lot of human languages do that also. That's just one example. I mean, that can play out in different uses of vocabulary. It can play out in verb forms, you know, very fancy verb forms, very plain verb forms. It just depends on um, the nature of the aliens you're dealing with and what their culture might be like. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Speaking of the the culture. So you were mentioning that most of the cre- uh, most of the alien civilizations in Star Citizen are like of a spacefaring race. Uh, how, do they are there similarities because they are equally as technologically advanced, or is there like each their own based on like their history before they got to their spacefaring level? Uh, how do those relate? Well, that good question again. It that's kind of all over the map. I mean, I um, I would say that you know to this point, every everybody, um, all the but I say everybody, all the different aliens that I've dealt dealt <laughs> with um, in any kind of detail, they have um, you know they they're humanoid enough that they okay. they can all speak in a way that we recognize vowels and consonants, you know? So, so that's had something to do with um, some decisions that are made about number base numbers, for example. So when you have a bunch of different uh, cultures interacting with each other, they often have uh, standards like the decimal system, for example. So we tend to count from one to 10, most human cultures now, that hasn't always been the case. The Sumerians did it differently. The Maya did it differently um, historically. But we we see how much interaction the aliens have with each other. And then maybe that means that they've decided they're going to standardize on base 10 for cross-cultural 
you know, exchange, whether that's monetary exchange Mm -hmm. or whatever kind of exchange. Um, I think sometimes they, their biology has some stuff to do with, with what goes on. Um, most of them are, you know, so far they, they communicate primarily via speech, but there's no reason that uh, they couldn't have sign languages as well. Sometimes you can have speech and sign simultaneously. You can have speech augmented by sign or sign augmented by some kind of facial movement or some kind of sound. So there are all kinds of different ways to go. But so far, everything that's published at Star, Star Citizen is just is mainly based on oral communication, based on talking and listening and hearing. Interesting. With, with all these sort of uh, little details in constructing the language, why do you think it's important to put all this effort into something that, you know, most players wouldn't really engage with? Um, also a great question. I, to me, I think of it a little bit like, um, a, a little bit like the, the nature of, for humans might be exotic travel, right? So if you go to Greece and you can't read the Greek alphabet, you have a different experience than going to Greece and you went to the trouble to learn the Greek alphabet before you got there, because at least you can read road signs and other things if you learn the alphabet. You know, the same with the Cyrillic alphabet, with, you know, Slavic cultures. Um, So I think it... By having real, you know, legitimate grammatical alien language in the game, there will be certain things that even the players who don't learn to listen and hear and understand and reproduce with their own mouths the languages, there'll be certain standards, right? So you'll you'll see um, cultural icons. There'll be certain words that you'll encounter you'll hear spoken like greetings or words for thank you the same kind of thing that if you went to greece and didn't speak greek you might pick up while you're there you know the very basics (laughs) you know where is the restroom and and thank you and please and where can i pay you know you sometimes you you end up having to learn these little phrases even though you're basically an alien in an alien environment to you you know so it's a similar parallel, I think. There will be people, um, there already are people, who have learned the languages grammatically and have learned to read and write and are having fun inventing their own fonts, you know, their own typefaces for these alien cultures, um, doing some really fascinating, amazing stuff that I'm amazed by myself. So once we once we create a, a a culture with its own language and its own writing for the people that do want to engage. It opens up a a really fascinating Avenue of cultural things, fun things, creative things that they can explore while they're not in the game. Right. So it's like, maybe you love going to Greece, but you don't get to go to Greece every year. But while you're not in Greece, you like studying Greek. You like learning about Greek food you know, you, you study up, uh, and then mm-hmm. when you, when you're back in Greece and engaging, you have a different experience than the people who don't learn to speak Greek or learn about spices used in Greek cooking, etc. So, um, 
I think it gives a continuum of of potential experiences for people. And of course, you know, we're talking about um, hundreds of years in the future in, in terms of human technology and evolution of our civilization. So, um, so there probably, you know, will be some technologies that'll help just like already you can point your phone at something and, you know, it'll tell you, oh, all that squiggly Chinese writing means, you know, this is vegetarian. You, you know, you can, we already have technologies that help with language challenges, cross-cultural language challenges. Mm -hmm. And I don't know for sure. I imagine that there will be some kind of assistance in certain cases for people who don't learn the languages fluently. But again, it creates a continuum of potential experiences for people. And that's what we're interested in, the realism of it. I'm, I'm kind of interested in, with regards to the realism, because it is set hundreds of years in the future, is there going... Have you seen that there's changes in English for the time in the in Star Citizen versus hundreds of years in the future? Are you like anticipating future changes in English as well? There, well, that's not my department right now. Okay, so okay. I, okay. I, I <laughs> you know, there are some there are some changes in that. Um, you know, they're they're different brands and different standards. And mm -hmm. I've noticed just from my, you know, that's not my department, but I've noticed it yes. that, no. um, for example, the people's names, you know, the, the names of the people mm -hmm. who speak, who speak standard in the, in the future. Um, there seems to be a whole lot more cultural diversity. You know, you get people okay. with a, with an Indic first name and a Spanish last name. They're making a lot of effort to show a slightly different human civilization than we have today in terms mm -hmm. of people's backgrounds and cultural experiences and all of that. But in terms of have they asked me for like slang for the way people mm -hmm. speak in the Star Citizen universe? No. no. May, might they one day? Yes. But uh, again, that's, that's kind of more the... Um, the territory of the folks who are already in the creative writing team, the narrative team, who, who, who speak English now natively as their their first languages. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Working on a script like Shion or Banu, like they look very different from each other. Even how do you decide how a script looks? Because I would think that only knowing English. It's fairly driven by sort of practicality and like how quickly can you write down information? Are there other guiding principles to it? There are guiding principles. Uh, it, it kind of depends on a case-by-case -case basis, a culture-by-culture -culture basis. So in the case of the Xi'an writing, it was very important to Chris Roberts at the, the head of, you know, everything at Star Citizen to have, to have Xi'an design vocabulary, if you will, be extremely vertical. So he wanted the ships to be vertical. He wanted anything that was an inscription that was written in Xi'an, in a native Xi'an context, to be vertical. And that drove a lot of the ideas around, you know, the, the look of it and the kind of syllable-based nature of it. But we also had the design practicality that in, in this future world, the Xi'an are interacting a, a bit, you know, with the humans and you get into context where, okay, 
we need to publish this bilingual information sheet, you know, so that anybody who's a speaker of standard or a speaker of Xi'an would be able to read it. So that kind of forces us to make a writing direction distinction. And if we write Xi'an in syllable blocks the way we do, it can also easily be written horizontally. So that was a big kind of factor there. And with Banu, we we very much wanted it to look very different from Xi'an. And it just it grew out of an idea for an older style of writing that somewhat, I guess, philosophically inspired by the idea of that a lot of human writing originated with record keeping, right? They had people who had accounts, they had ledgers, um, they made transactions, they needed to start writing down the promises made in contracts. So a lot of writing came out of necessity, not out of the idea of, oh, we're going to have beautiful poetry. You know, it came out of very practical things. So the Banu writing um, evolved out of the idea that they had these kind of iconic ways to track bundles of things when they were trading with each other. So that's, you know, a good kind of imaginary paradigm for for how it really could have happened. So the the kind of roundish, more I call them bundles, the way the sounds are bundled up in individual syllables in Banu, that comes out of that idea. Part of it is just you're being, you're playing, you're doing art with language, right? So you can be creative with it. Mm -hmm. The stakes are not the highest in the world. This is a game. This (laughs) is for people's entertainment. It's to expose people to different ideas about how language works. So there are probably some people learning Banu who've never thought about writing in a syllabary where every single independent thing is a full sound, which is the way it works in, in Banu. Hmm. So people who are learning these fictional languages are also getting exposed to new ideas about writing and sounds and vocabulary and grammar that maybe they haven't experienced in a human language so far. So, you know, it's, I try to, we try to mix things up and keep it fun too, for the people who are going to put in the work to learn how to read and write the non-human languages. I think that that's a really great way to put it. And it's making connections into our own world and making people think about language and art aside from the game as well. It's a, you can make that connection to bring it back into the reality of how, I mean, like you mentioned with Greek and the Cyrillic alphabet earlier, there's, you can make a connection and try and understand how different languages interact and how those different languages influence the culture around them. That whenever you have a constructed language that it's always based on something else that's directly out of human experience. Of course, we're humans, right? We're we're kind of locked in to a certain extent to thinking and processing our human experiences with our own brain. So, you know, you you can end up with things that do seem quite derivative or you know pulled directly from here and there. And you know, I I, I am honest in saying that all kinds of different facets of human language influence the the work that I do for Star Citizen. I'm not trying to completely reinvent the wheel you know we we're Mm -hmm. ultimately we're talking about performance capture and actors Mm -hmm. and they have to learn something they have to learn 
speech behavior. They have to learn gestural behavior. They have to learn something that will translate into, you know, an entity in the game that, that we get to perceive as a living, breathing alien in the context of, of that gameplay. But we, you know, things can be really, really out there. The, the language in District 9, for example, with the, the a- aliens in that context, mm-hmm. not reproducible by human mouth parts, you know, and that's not actually a grammatical language, but it could have been. It could have been a grammatical mm-hmm. language created completely out of keys on a synthesizer, that sounds that they can make and human beings cannot make them. They didn't need to do that for that language, for the world building. You know, they weren't in that film. They were not building an entire universe with a broad collection of of different species. They were just showing, okay, these are really different aliens and this is what it might mean to be in close contact with them. So, you know, I, we, we, who knows what aliens will eventually show up in the Star Citizen universe. I mean, some of them might not be people who get in performance capture suits and, you know, play the parts. There there could be extremely out there aliens who communicate in very, very unusual ways. But that's not a bridge that uh, that I've come to yet that I've needed to think about crossing. So um, for now, we have the aliens that, that we have, and those are the only ones I know about. I think that we have, it's all the time that we have for today. Uh, Britton, thank you very much for joining us. Hopefully we can have you back in the future. If there's anything else you want to talk about and bring forth in your projects, we'd love to have you back on. Thanks, guys. I've really enjoyed it, and good luck with everything. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. One more thank you to uh, Britton for joining us today. That was a fantastic interview. Again, I wish we had a little bit more time, but thank you for your time and everything that you... Let us know about the ongoing world of Star Citizen, which I do have to say, I am. I was a big fan when I initially heard it announced back in like 20, uh, when I was made aware of it in 2013, 2014. In preparation for this interview, I was watching a lot of gameplay and like just looking at everything. It's looking massive and beautiful. I mean, for like a continuing, for like a continuing alpha state, the, the improvements that they've been made is really really fantastic it's really interesting i had a great time with freelancer uh which was another chris roberts game that i think came out in the early 2000s star citizen is kind of a like spiritual successor to uh freelancer and yeah i'm hoping that star citizen sort of scratches that same itch because freelancer was quite the game it was great yeah i'm i've always been fascinated by full universe exploration as I mean, we heard a little bit from Britton about uh, his work with the Klingon language, and I'm, I'm a, not, I'm not a, I'm not as much of a Star Trek fan as to go to a Star Trek convention, but I do like me some Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just that whole idea of exploring and learning about new, new peoples, new, new worlds, and just space exploration is yeah. Makes everything extra giddy. So as we wrap up this episode, what have y'all been playing? Anything new? Anything interesting? I'm, I managed to uh, play Oculus over the weekend. Mm. The new one? The Oculus 2? Or... Yeah. Or the, the white one, I forget. The Quest. The Quest, yeah. Oh, okay. 
yeah, it was uh, pretty cool. And it had a blast. Um, pretty interesting. It sort of detects where the floor is and you have to sort of set your whole play parameters. My whole thing with like VR is like, okay, what if you bump into a wall or, you know, a yes. TV or someone else? And so um, it, as you're playing a game, wh- whichever game you're on, um, it'll sort of notify you when you're about to reach a wall, which I thought was pretty handy. Um, that is nice, especially for a wireless VR setup. Yeah, especially for games such as um, I was playing a super red hot VR. Yes. Which is <laughs> very, uh, requires a lot of movement. Yeah, it's on matrix moves just trying to dodge everybody and you know like the wanted movie just bending bullets mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was pretty fun uh managed to play a little uh beat saber which is pretty cool it's like guitar hero almost-esque yes uh i played uh resident evil 4 vr which is pretty interesting Ooh. oh yeah i heard that that was like one of uh, from people that have played it they say it's almost like a definitive it reinvigorates one of the best Resident Evil games and turns it into like a new experience. It was it like Yeah. Did you play the original? Yeah, I played the original and comparing it to the VR version, um, it felt very much like a sort of like a arcade shooter almost, like a shooting gallery. Um which I th- I think was an interesting take on on the franchise because seeing that you know the original is in third person so putting Mm -hmm. it in that first person just kind of i think changed the whole sort of vibe um i didn't get to play through the entire game i only played through like the first 30 Mm -hmm. minutes but i'm just i'm just curious as to how they handled the other sections of the game Mm -hmm. and like uh, any of the larger bosses or anything yeah and um helping uh the president's daughter i forget her name but you know, just managing Yeah, what her. a wild story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, just for the game. It's like, yes, you're, you're like, saving the president of the United States' daughter. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I did come across um, some motion sickness. Uh, so there's, there's two modes of play for it. Um, there's the first mode in which you can just sort of walk around and your, your movements will track with the uh, in-game character's movement. That instantly gave me like motion sickness. So I had to turn that setting off and uh, had to do the sort of default, which you sort of just kind of point in a direction you want to move and it'll just transfer you over there, which is, it took a little bit of the immersiveness out of it, but I didn't want to yak. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah. I really haven't been playing much else also, uh, out there. I've been on a Monster Hunter Rise Train. It's really fun. It's really good. I highly recommend it uh, if you like Monster Hunter games. I think this is also like a good entry point if you haven't played a Monster Hunter game. Uh, give it a shot. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 20 bucks cheaper at GameStop right now. So, But I think that may be all the time we have for this episode. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. 
This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Scott and Joseph Scro. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Miles. I'm Anthony. I'm Red. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thank you.